You ever had someone ask you before this question? I've got good news and bad news. Which do you want first? How many of you guys are the type of people that like the good news first? And who likes the bad news first? I think we, okay, I'm kind of surprised that it was that dramatic of a contrast there. I'm with you. I like the bad news first because the good news just kind of softens the blow a little bit, right? Uh, I, I bring that up this morning because Paul is going to use a similar tactic here in the book of Romans. He, he doesn't give us the choice of getting the good news or the bad news first. He kind of makes that decision for us. But our sermon this morning really is going to be a lot of bad news, if I could put it that way. Um, this is really how Paul begins his book. Thus far in the last three sermons, we've done a lot of introductory type information. I said maybe in the first sermon that Romans is a very theologically and doctrinally rich book, and we haven't totally gotten into that yet. It's been a lot of introductory information. You can see on the screen here just kind of the outline of it. In the first six verses, Paul introduces himself, telling us about his calling and his message. He says, and I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I've specifically been set apart by him to go to the Gentiles with the gospel. In verses 7 to 15, he greets the church in Rome. He says, I've not yet made it to Rome yet, but I'm excited to see you guys. Uh, I want to encourage you and be encouraged by your faith. I want to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and we saw from our text last week in verses 16 and 17 that Paul's eagerness in preaching this gospel isn't because he's been received well everywhere he's gone. That's, that's not the case. People hate him. He's eager to preach the gospel because he knows that this is the one message that actually has the power of God to save. For a long time, Humans have been trying by their own means to save themselves. We saw just last week Martin Luther. For 15 years, this guy was a monk living in conditions that were terrible. I mentioned that he almost got frostbite once just from his own room that he was staying in. He, he regularly starved himself and flogged himself to atone for his own sins, all in the attempt to earn his own righteous standing before God. And I asked the question last week, doesn't that sound exhausting? For the responsibility of our righteousness to be our own. Right? This is what makes Jesus so awesome. is because he's already done it for us. That's what verses 16 and 17 are introducing for us. They're saying there is a righteousness that is not your own, that is available to you through faith. It's not your own doing. It's not some faith in some works. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone that you can be declared righteous before God. Some commentators have actually noted that verses 16 and 17 are kind of like the, the theme of the whole book. If you've ever read a scholarly uh, research paper before, there's usually a paragraph right at the top called an abstract that is supposed to summarize the contents of what follows. You should be able to read that paragraph and know everything that follows is an elaboration of this paragraph here. It, it would seem that verses 16 and 17 of Romans are that abstract. Everything that follows this 
theme of justification by faith is elaborated on. The, the, the remaining chapters, actually I can show you the outline of the book of Romans here, the remaining chapters are elaborating on verses 16 and 17. So you see these doctrines of justification and sanctification and election. Then there's an application of this gospel. But before Paul can circle back around to the theme in verses 16 and 17, he's got to first address what I'm calling the bad news. We, we might think of verses 16 and 17 as Paul giving us the solution There is righteousness of God that is available to you through faith. But let me tell you the problem. Let me illustrate for you guys why you desperately need this righteousness. If you're not already there, turn to Romans chapter 1. And we'll see our need for this righteousness ourselves. found in verse 18. And we read that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. I trust why you can see why I'm calling this the bad news. That God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. If you know anything about the scriptures, you know that we're all ungodly. That we're all unrighteous. This isn't just something that we kind of dabble in every once in a while. The scriptures are clear. We're born like this. Uh, Our sin nature is evident from the outset. And as a consequence of that, God's wrath is revealed on everyone who is wicked. And that's everybody. No one's excluded from God's wrath. How does that strike you? That God's wrath is directed on sinful people. Pretty sobering, huh? It's one thing if our friend across the street is upset at us. It's another entirely if the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present God who created this world, his wrath is against us. A a A lot of people in our day and age have this false belief that they're good with God that things are fine between them. And this scripture is saying, not so fast. God's wrath is revealed against your ungodliness and your unrighteousness. Now, maybe you're sitting there thinking, God's wrath isn't really something that I have factored into my understanding of who God is. I I I thought that he was loving, and kind, and gracious, and merciful, all of the attributes we like to think about, right? I thought God was those things. But that's only half the picture. The the scriptures are clear that God is also a God of wrath. Let me show you a book we don't turn to a whole lot, but one that is especially relevant here, Nahum. 
chapter 1, verse 2, informs us that the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. Unless you think that this description of God is just something that is kind of confined to the Old Testament. Well, you know, the God of the Old Testament was kind of that angry, wrathful God, but he changed in the new. Not so fast. Look at John 3.36. We have some good news first. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. As we will progress through the book of Romans, we'll see that perhaps more specifically, God's wrath isn't just on our sin, as if somehow it is a distinct entity from us where we're able to kind of shirk God's wrath onto our sin. Well, that, yeah, that's wicked. We see that God's wrath actually is directed at us. Turn just one chapter over in your Bible to Romans chapter 2. Look at verse 5. We'll just read kind of the first part of that verse. We see that because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for whom? Yourself. Jump down to verse, um, I believe it's 8. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Perhaps you've heard a well-intended saying that God hates the sin but loves the sinner. I think from these verses, I would conclude that that is imprecise. That's not entirely accurate. Certainly, God does love sinners. John 3, we're looking at it on the screen. Just prior to this, God loves the world. But there is a sense in which God's wrath is also upon sinners. It it would be accurate from this text and others to say that God's wrath is directed at us because of our unrighteousness, because of our sin and our ungodliness. We're so closely intertwined with sin that when God judges sin, we are judged too. And when thinking about God's wrath, It's helpful to keep a couple of things in mind. I just want to set like some parameters when we think about wrath because we have our own conception in our minds as to what wrath looks like. And it's different than what God's wrath is like. First of all, God's wrath is not sinful. We may have a caricature of wrath in our minds that looks something like a person whose hands are clenched, their face is beat red. They are shaking with uncontrollable rage and fury and just looking to take that wrath out on somebody. Clearly, that is a sinful expression of wrath. That is someone who is out of control. God's wrath is not that. Second, God's wrath is focused. We might say it's intentional. Here, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 is telling us that the focus of God's wrath is on ungodliness and unrighteousness. God isn't just someone who is perpetually angry looking for someone to take his wrath out on. It's focused. There's a purpose for it, and this goes hand in hand with the third point about God's wrath, that it is a part of his character. Go back to chapter 2, verse 
5, we'll read the whole verse. Actually, I've got it on the screen here for you. We read that because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Notice how this day of wrath is described here. It's called God's righteous judgment. And this phrase is critical in helping us understand what God's wrath is like. We have to remember that this is a part of his character. We have to take into account all of God's attributes, that he is holy, that he is without sin, that he's set apart and removed from sin. It can't be anywhere near his presence. He's pure. We have to remember that God is just, that when God sees wickedness, he judges it rightly to the truest extent. We have to remember that sin is not something that God is just like, oh, I'll let that coexist with me. I could take it or leave it. No, God is adamantly opposed to sin. That sin is what has marred his creation. It's built a barrier between us and him. It is an affront to his character. Our participation in sin is a crime against the lawgiver and the highest judge. And like we would expect any other judge to mete out a proper judgment on people who have done wrong, so too must God be just in his treatment of sin. And here in Romans chapter 2, we're told about this day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And our fourth point about God's wrath is that it is terrifying. We can't be told that God's wrath is revealed against unrighteousness and ungodliness and then kind of shrug our shoulders and go, okay, Right, if I, if I was told that someone around the world was angry at me in Europe somewhere, my day wouldn't change a whole lot. But to hear that God is wrathful against us, it's terrifying to know that the ultimate manifestation of that wrath is eternal condemnation in hell, to see how seriously God takes our sins against him, to maybe observe in the Old Testament little snippets of God's wrath as he judges sin. Can't help but think about Noah and the flood, right? And how wicked the world was in his day and age, and the measures God took in judging the world. You can't help but think about Sodom and Gomorrah and their wickedness, and how they received judgment at the hand of God. To think that we might receive similar judgment at God's hand should cause us to be terrified. From this text, I think as we'll see next week, it would seem that God's wrath is not just a future, like, event at, at the day of wrath. As we read Romans 1, into next week, we'll see that there seems to be present consequences of God's judgment and wrath, even in this life. We'll get to those next week, but I just want you to know right now, today, that it is biblically accurate to say that God's wrath is revealed presently against wicked humanity. Unless you think that I am 
just focusing unnecessarily on one particular aspect of God's character, and in the back of your mind, you're still thinking, well, yes, you know, God is still loving and good and gracious. I'm not trying to give unequal weight to God's wrath here. I'm simply trying to stay close to the text here and, and, and follow Paul's frame of thought. Paul is not here in Romans chapter 1 trying to give us a comprehensive picture of all of God's attributes. He's not trying to inform us all of the ways and things that God is and does and all of the different character qualities of God's. Paul is trying to show us that we desperately need God's righteousness because right now his wrath is set against us. And normally, at this point, we would share the good news of Jesus Christ. And we would talk about how Jesus satisfied the wrath of God. But that's not where Paul goes. Paul actually takes a deep dive into the extent of human wickedness in these following verses. Because we may read about God's wrath being against all people. And as we're reading the first part of verse 18 here, we might think to ourselves, God's wrath is on all people? Really? Is that fair? What about people that don't know God? Aren't people kind of good. We know there's some bad, but there's a lot of good people walking around on earth today too, and you're telling me God's wrath is revealed at them as well? John MacArthur put it this way, this is a rough paraphrase, but he asks the question in anticipation of the verses to come, is it fair that God's wrath is revealed against people who don't even know him? Against people who haven't even heard the gospel. Is it fair that God's wrath is against those people too? We understand that God might be wrathful at criminals, right? But what about those people who live like in the remote places of the world? God's wrath is on them too? Paul is going to answer those questions and others in the coming verses. And I think we'll have some pretty clear answers as to who's, who God's wrath is on and why. Let's just look at the last phrase there in verse 18 that I've not yet read. We read that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. One of the manifestations of humanity's unrighteousness is that they suppress the truth. This begs the question, what truth are we talking about here? Verse 19 elaborates for us. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so they are without excuse. In the answer to the question, what truth is humanity suppressing? These two verses are very clear. They're suppressing truth about God. Namely, his divine power. Excuse me, let me read that right out of the text. 
Namely, they are suppressing his eternal power and his divine nature. From the text, we see that God has revealed these attributes and the things that we can see in creation. We call this general revelation, that God has revealed himself in creation. We should be able to look outside and conclude two things about God. One, that he exists. And two, that he is powerful. Have you experienced this before? Have you ever been outside and just been in awe of God? As I thought about maybe some of the more accessible places that we can experience this, I just thought of the ocean. When you look out over this vast expanse of water that nobody can tame, and to think, wow, I'm pretty small. When you know a little bit more about science and the process of how God ordained all of these things, and you realize that the ocean is critical for maintaining or regulating the temperature of the earth, for providing the rain which falls on the earth and waters our uh, trees and vegetation. It's critical in providing food for a ton of people and if managed correctly, can perpetually provide food for people. To, to know all of these things about the ocean and to see it and think about it should leave you with no other conclusion. This has been designed. There is a God and this God must be powerful. Maybe you're thinking about the forest or the mountains or the different species of animals that you can observe and you see all of these things working together to pollinate each other and to uh, any number of things that animals and plants do that are just mind-blowing. We should see them. And this text of scripture is saying that a natural and right response should be to say, wow, God is powerful. He exists. We read from our scripture reading even today in Psalm 19, the psalmist is looking up into the heavens and he's saying, wow, the glory of God is revealed here. As the sun and the moon go across their path every single day and no person is pulling it or directing it, there is a God that exists. We can see it in creation. And yet Paul is telling us here in this first verse that fallen humanity sees all of these evidences around them in creation they see evidence of God's power, of his existence, and in their unrighteousness, they suppress that truth. And they look at the same things that you and I do, and they conclude, there's no God. And they begin to give other explanations for the existence of these things. They say that this world was created through a giant explosion, which has just started in a really small point, and everything we see around us is the result, really, of chance. They look at the intricacies of creation and our bodies and nature, and they say this is really just what happens when you have a really long time for natural processes to work themselves out through trial and error, and this is where we have arrived today. 
Do you see, as I recite even some of the evolutionary perspectives, how this is an affront to God? For people to look at his creation, which is given to us to reveal his glory, and they say, no, I don't believe that. Notice this isn't just really an ignorance. This is a suppression of the truth. Meaning that these people deep down know the right answer and they are choosing to give something else credit like an explosion or a process, the credit that God himself deserves. This is a willing rejection of God. Here is God, the sole authority in the universe, who made man, who sets the rules, who's revealed himself to us in the outdoors, in creation. And mankind sees all of these things, and they turn their back on God. They want nothing to do with him. The rejection of God doesn't stop there. Excuse me, let me back up just really quickly and address one more thing. There at the end of verse 20, we see this one little sentence that says, so they are without excuse. Paul has just talked about how all of creation is revealing God. And then there's this phrase, so they're without excuse. What does that mean? Let me ask you this. Is there a scenario in which someone could stand before God and say, I didn't know you existed. I had no idea. How, how, how can I be held accountable for rejecting you? God says, if you've seen creation, that's enough. Creation reveals me and you have rejected me. It's enough to condemn people. There's no excuse for not knowing about God. Mankind's wickedness and depravity doesn't end at suppressing the truth about God, though. Verse 21 elaborates a little bit more for us. And we read, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. From these verses, it would seem apparent that when you suppress the knowledge of God and deny his existence, the natural consequence of that is to ascribe the glory and worship that belongs to God alone to other things. You can see uh, in verse 25, we'll come to this verse next week, but I think verse 25 captures what's happening well. We read, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This text assumes that the proper response to seeing God in creation is to, verse 21, honor him, give thanks to him, verse 25, worship him, serve him. We should see creation and think, wow, there is an all-powerful God who exists. He has revealed himself to me. He is bigger than I. I must submit to him and worship him and honor him and give him my thanks. And yet what fallen humanity has done is they've not only rejected God, 
but they've given that worship that belongs to God alone, and they've begun worshiping other things. Verse 25 words at best, they've begun worshiping the creature rather than the creator. A clear violation of Exodus 20's command to have no other gods before me. There's a double offense here of rejecting God, suppressing the truth about him, and then taking the very worship that belongs to him and worshiping idols. We say this today, don't we? This is rampant. How many people are actually giving God the glory and the credit that he deserves? Not many. Mankind finds ways to worship anything but God. They may worship images, like verse 23 alludes to. They might worship themselves, their intellect, their reputation, all that they've accomplished. They might worship a false god. They might worship scientific discovery. They might worship their rights, the things that they get to do and want to do. But in each of these instances, they are finding ways to take what belongs to God alone and to ascribe it to God's creation. This is idolatry that these people are engaging in. You'll, you'll hear it in very subtle ways, but people will take credit for the good things that happen to them in their life. They'll say, yeah, I am pretty awesome. They'll look out at creation and they'll say, isn't Mother Nature amazing? They'll turn to false gods for their sense of security and hope, like they were doing back in the Old Testament with Baal and the Ashtaroth. People have always found ways in their depravity to worship anyone but God. From God's perspective, the very people that he has made in his image to be worshipped by him, they've turned their back on him. They've ignored him, rejected him. They deny that he even exists. And verse 22 says that in doing this, they claim to be wise. How many people in culture today think that believing in God is an intellectually inferior position? Right? They say, if you believe in God, that's a nice crutch for you but I'm smart enough that I don't need religion to fall back on. I can think for myself. They're claiming to be wise here. We see this all over the place in our government, in these different things that are being decreed where people are purposefully making decisions that exclude God and his laws from them. And they think this is awesome. They're the smartest people ever. What is Paul's evaluation of people? Verse 22, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. For as smart as these people like to think they are in not needing God and in rejecting him, Paul's analysis of this is they are being foolish. It it echoes what Psalms 14 says, that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Here's the general point that Paul is trying to make to us this morning. Mankind is wicked to the core. They they don't even need knowledge of the Ten Commandments to have already sinned against God. They can see 
God revealed in creation and reject him, suppress the knowledge of his existence, and in turn worship other things. They will be condemned for these actions. Mankind isn't just a group of people who do bad things on occasion. Sin isn't just something we do. It's not like we're morally neutral. We aren't even inclined towards God. We are totally wicked and depraved. They've denied God's existence. They worship other things as if they were taking their fist and shaking it in God's face and saying, I want nothing to do with you, God. And this is everybody who has been tainted and marred by sins. And because God is just, these sinful actions cannot go unpunished. So think about this. Your neighbor, who's really nice to you, who had you over for a cookout, if they don't know Christ, the wrath of God is on them. Your coworker, who you see every single day, a nice, friendly guy, the wrath of God's on them. Your friends and your family, whom you love dearly, the wrath of God is on them. This is a perilous place to be, right? To know that God's wrath is revealed against sinners. And this is kind of where our text ends this morning, right? Paul actually takes like into chapter 2, maybe even into chapter 3, describing the extent of human depravity. And I realized that this sermon probably wasn't like the most cheery thing ever. You're not going to leave thinking, wow, the wrath of God is so amazing. But maybe by way of application, as we think about human wickedness and depravity in rejecting God, can we not follow Paul's example in beginning the gospel with the bad news? Why would people need deliverance if it's first not clear to them what they need deliverance from? Why would you tell people about a righteousness that can be available to them if they first don't understand that they are unrighteous? Let's not soften our proclamation of the gospel in watering down the depravity of mankind. People need to understand that for them, as individuals, God's wrath remains on them. Paul is trying to make that abundantly clear to us this morning. We are all guilty before God. And after that, when we first present the bad news, then we can present Christ and say, but look at what Jesus has done. When you and I deserved God's wrath, he bore it in our place. It makes the message of Jesus that much more glorious to begin with the bad news and say, but someone has come so that God would not be wrathful at us anymore. Maybe a second point of application from this text is this. We've read a handful of times now in the book of John, Jesus saying, that no one comes to the Father unless he's drawn. Is that not evident to us from our text this morning, that people are not searching after God? They, they are not naturally inclined towards him. In fact, in their depravity and their wickedness, they're looking for other things to worship. We have to keep in mind that salvation is a supernatural work. 
that it is God who draws people to himself. So that relieves the burden off of us to try and go toe-to-toe with someone in logic and saying, well, I'm right because of this reason, and they're saying this. We simply have to be messengers of the gospel and let God do the work in drawing people. I'm not going to totally end here, though, because I think that there are a couple of relevant topics that this passage helps us to understand, maybe some things we could think through together a little bit more practically. So some practical questions from Romans 1. How does this passage shape our understanding of atheism? This belief that there is no God. Is this something that people logically conclude? According to this text, what would be true of people who say that there is no God? That they've suppressed the truth. Within each of us is this knowledge that God exists. He has revealed himself to all of us. And so to conclude then that there is no God is really to suppress what already exists within us. Now, this doesn't mean we should look down on atheists and think that we should call them the fools, as as Paul does here in this passage of Scripture. Certainly not. Maybe it helps us pray for them a little bit better. To know that their sin has blinded them to such a point that what should exist within them has been darkened and, and hidden from them. And ask that God would reveal himself again to them. And that that knowledge of his existence that they can see might just leap off the page, so to speak, to them. Secondly, from this text of scripture. Why are people who have never heard the gospel condemned? Sometimes you'll hear this question. It seems to be a bit of a gotcha question in Christianity. Someone will ask you, they'll mention some remote island somewhere. Let's say Papua New Guinea. And they'll say, so you're telling me that people in Papua New Guinea that have never heard the name of Christ are going to hell. How does that make sense? In light of this passage of scripture, how could we answer someone who says that to us? Normally when they phrase this, they think that these people in uh, Papua New Guinea are innocent is there true human, innocent, human innocence based on this passage of scripture here? No, this text is saying that all people have seen God in creation and have rejected him. God doesn't condemn innocent people. They're right. But a corollary to that is that there are no innocent people. Everyone has willingly rejected God, and this is enough to condemn them. And this question also has a follow-up to it. Is knowledge of God through creation sufficient to save someone? Let's take someone in Papua New Guinea, for instance. And they have a knowledge of God. They do see him in creation and conclude that there is a God that he is powerful, 
Is that knowledge enough to save them? Will they die and go to heaven knowing that God exists? Shake your head, yes or no. No. Again, the scriptures are clear. There is one name under heaven whereby you must be saved. It's in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And so knowledge of God is not enough to come to God. These people will be condemned because of general revelation, but they can't be saved because of it. Do you see the importance then of missionaries to preach this good news, to bring it to people who every day are being condemned and dying and going to hell because of their rejection of God? They need to hear the name of Jesus Christ. Now, the good news is, as people have pointed out to me as I studied this week, that it seems that when people are genuinely searching for God, God brings people to them who will share the gospel with them. There's actually more instances than I realized in scripture of this happening. Uh, Cornelius in Acts 10, he is described as being someone who worships God, prays to him often, but he doesn't know Jesus. And we all know from the story of Cornelius that God sends Peter to him with the message of Jesus Christ, and it's then that he gets the Spirit. Uh, I, again, was unfamiliar with this one, but Lydia in Acts chapter, I think, 16, she is described as someone who uh, fears God or knows God, something to that effect. She's not a believer yet. And Paul comes with the good news of the gospel and says, let me introduce you to Jesus. And she gets saved. We might think of the Ethiopian eunuch also in Acts, someone who is reading Isaiah 53, has some questions about it. And God sends Philip to him and says, look, this is fulfilled in Christ. You can be saved. Again, I want to make the point clear. General revelation, this knowledge of God that people have within themselves is not enough to save them. They need Jesus Christ. They need to know him and what he has done for them. Again, I realize this is kind of a heavier passage of scripture talking about God's wrath here. But if nothing else, I hope that this informs the way that you share the gospel. Please let people know that their sin has created a barrier between them and God. They are not kind of good people. They're not okay. God's wrath remains against them and then introduce them to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, as we think about just the wrath that was directed towards us before we knew Christ, we're so grateful that you saved us, that we don't have to worry about this anymore. Uh, Lord, we should have a, a healthy fear for our neighbors who are still under your wrath. Please help us to love them. Give us eyes to see them in a new light and to realize that they are not okay as things stand. Give us compassion for them and a boldness like Paul has in preaching the gospel, even the bad news at the beginning, that our sin is an affront to your character and that a holy and just God stands ready to judge. Thank you for what you have revealed in Christ and provided in him to satisfy your wrath, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.